Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Joe Wright's partner. I know you can still move Joe Wright to the Colts radio network. Joining Charlie Clifford to Wish TV, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Joe Wright's, when you think about stuff that matters Sunday against the Texans, what's on your your short bullet list there? I assume that's it's not a very long list, but what are you intrigued about of what transpires Sunday afternoon? Yeah, well, one, uh, good to be on with you fellas. And I think, you know, first and foremost, and look, I lived through one of these seasons in 2011, right? We were 2-14. and 14. Yep. Uh, I know the Colts have been in the six-game losing streak, and that just – it just stinks. Yeah. Uh, you know, we lost 13 in a row to start that season, and, you know, Jeff was playing right next to me at center, and so I know just how hard those seasons are and feel for those guys. But when you get to the last game of the season, one, I'm looking at Ellinger first and foremost, and I right. think another chance to look at him, see what you think he brings you potentially for the future. But I do think it'll be a game, too. You'll get a chance to look at a lot of younger guys. And – um, you know, a lot of guys that maybe haven't played a ton, but now, you know, some different guys are going on IR. You know, they're promoting different guys from the practice squad. And, sure. You know, a chance to get some game action for some younger players on the roster that, you know, they're they're fighting, scratching, pulling like heck to try to be on this team next year. And I think that's the reality. Obviously, whenever you have a, a disappointing season, you know, there's always a lot of turnover in the NFL roster-wise, but there's even more so when you have a season like this. And, you know, so some of those younger guys, Ellinger first and foremost, but still, you know, there's a lot of guys that uh, want to show this organization that they want to be a Colt for a long time moving forward. And I know I felt like I was a younger player when we were 2-14 and 14 that season. <laughs> and that would, once you're mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, I mean, you still are playing for your team, but it's different right. because you don't have that playoffs that you're really all pulling together for but you know i'd be lying if if some of your thoughts aren't as a player well (laughs) i want to make sure that i play well so i belong back here next year and i'm showing 31 other teams that i'm an nfl player and there is a lot of that personal accountability um and pride that you know guys hopefully will be playing for sunday afternoon joe it's jimmy we stress this all the time that In the course of the NFL season, everything's on film. There's tape of everything. There's tape of every snap. So to your point about young players getting this opportunity and knowing that maybe this isn't an opportunity with the Colts next year, but it's showing you what you're capable of doing for one of the other 31 teams in the NFL. We've never been in that situation. What is that process like for young guys finally getting an opportunity or a bite at the apple, regardless of they're not being stakes for the team, but they're stakes for them individually, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, your, your film is your resume, right? And, you know, if you're in a, a normal job like I am now in the financial world, you have a resume and you build it out and you write down the things you're good at and your accomplishments, et cetera. In the NFL, it's your film, and that's all you got. And there's 60 minutes and there's 60 or 70 plays, and that's what you're putting out there for the Colts first and foremost, but 31 other teams. So, again, it, it's, uh, you know, this clearly is a regular season game, but obviously there's no playoff implications, you know, but. You know, it brings me back to preseason games and fans. And, and I, I get it. They complain, why do we have the preseason and et cetera. But for me, that was always a chance to go out there and prove that I belonged in the NFL. So that's what I'll be watching first and foremost is Ellinger. And then some of these guys that, 
maybe a uh, Colts fan isn't familiar with their name necessarily. What does Mike Strawn have to do to get on the field, Joe? Is it time to see what we've seen glimpses of? He got a ball last week, and it's like, oh, my gosh, call up the search party. Mike Mike Strawn, there's a sighting. Yeah, well, you know, and one, I know he's battled some injuries, too. When you're not a core special teams guy, it's hard to get on the field because when you can only dress 46 guys. But clearly, Strawn and Ellinger had a good rapport in training camp. Yes. You know, he threw him a bunch of balls and and caught some some big plays and touchdowns. And so maybe he's a guy you look for because, again, the the Colts obviously are going to have a lot of needs moving into the offseason. And I know we're talking about quarterback, but just – Overall explosive playmakers. I said this on the Monday radio show Monday night. When I think about the Colts, we need more explosive playmakers. Third down, red zone, two areas that the Colts have really struggled. That yeah, they've been you terrible. Could down, you could boil down every NFL game to turnover differential, third down, and red zone, right? And it's about making those plays on the, the money down, like they call it when it matters. Yep. And so Strawn is certainly a guy that I think has some potential and, and would like to see him play and, and play well on Sunday. The Colts in the bottom three teams in the NFL, both in third down and red zone offenses. Joe Wright's Colts Radio Network in with us. Charlie Clifford, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. Joe, let's forecast the quarterback decision going forward. If you're Sam Ellinger, best case scenario for next season, what is that for Sam Ellinger? And also, there's a nice list now of potential quarterbacks out there. Derek Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo, Ryan Tannehill. Maybe that's the top end of that list. Lamar Jackson with the assumption he will be franchised by Baltimore. Jim Irsay last week called it. I should say after the Monday night game in his interview with ESPN, he referred to it as the odyssey with this quarterback trio of Rivers, Wentz, and now Matt Ryan. Do you expect next year, week one, if you had to put it on today, is it a rookie starting week one or out of necessity from what you've learned coming off bad seasons, would the best path forward be find potentially a different veteran to plug in with what all we all expect will be a very high draft pick at the quarterback spot. And please, on the Ellinger, Ellinger front as well, your thoughts on Sam. Yeah, well, I, I think overall, when I watch the modern-day NFL, I think what you see is, you know, quarterbacks with some type of mobility, right? <laughs> and there's, the, there's, the, there's Jalen Hurts and Justin Fields, right? Guys that might be more true runners. Yeah, and game breakers. Lamar Jackson in there. But is it necessarily healthy, in my opinion, for a quarterback to run for 100 yards every game? No, right? Yeah. Because, again, it's just a its a matter of fact. The longer you play and guys and how big and fast and strong they are, the injury perspective. Sure. But I think Colts fans that have watched these games the last few weeks have kind of seen, you know, Kenny Pickett, uh, Dak Prescott. When you, you we watch the game, Justin Herbert, you know, and when you go even Daniel Jones. I mean, people forget uh, it, it was funny to me. You know, everybody's talking about the Colts and, well, they've had a rough year this year and, you know, they can't be good next year. And I always say, one, you know, we went from 2-14 and 14 to the playoffs in 11-5 and five and 2. Even Daniel Jones, fans had bags over their heads last year in the oh, was, season finale, right? They wanted him and out. It was like, playoffs. it was him and Carson Wentz, the two yeah, quarterbacks it, that were being legitimately moved out yeah. by the fan base. Exactly. But you look at all four of those quarterbacks, you know, they're not necessarily run-first guys. They're not necessarily, you know, crazy explosive athletes, but the Herberts, the Daniel Jones, Pickett, you know, that type of guy that can move in and out of the pocket and make plays just because the game has changed so much. You can go back to, you know, the NFL doesn't change top down. It changed bottoms up is my belief. You know, when I was playing football in high school, you know, it was I formation and you run the ball and now you watch everything's five wide and spread and kids are fifth grade and their shotgun snap running zone reads. (laughs) And so guys are just used to that from, seventh grade to high school to college and now we've seen that in my opinion over the last really 
three to five years in the NFL and just that ability to move out of the pocket and then you contrast it, what are defenses? Defenses are faster, you know, lighter, quicker than they've ever been to combat those quarterbacks. And I just think from the quarterback position, when I close my eyes, you just got to think about mobility. And when you talk about week one, you know, and who's going to play. I mean, it's, Joe, it's I'm, a, I'm, I'm glad you said. Ways you can speculate, <laughs> but I just think that that's the modern day NFL quarterback, yeah. right? It's, it's rare that you, I mean, the, the Tom, Brady's and the Peyton Manning's and those guys I just think that's really kind of a, it's over. a dying breed in terms of the NFL wouldn't you guys agree I'm glad you said Kenny Pickett Joe a realistic blue, blueprint for next season in Indianapolis is to hope you are in the position the Pittsburgh Steelers are right now with a young quarterback after a slow start to the year who has shown you signs of being the guy in winning time paired with a great defense enough playmakers to go out there and win on the downs that you mentioned are key. The difference is they have Mike Tomlin. And anyone who thinks, you know, Mike Tomlin isn't the reason that that team has not had a losing season in a decade and a half, you know, I, I have nothing for you this afternoon. To me, Kenny Pickett, that blueprint, that is, that is an optimistic, you know, outcome for next year in Indianapolis. Jimmy, go ahead. Joe, I was just going to switch gears for a second on that front and – ask in regards to Houston because they are in the mix once again near the top of the draft holding the first pick right now Bryce Young has been linked to them but in terms of of Sunday's matchup Davis Mills was still speculated to start the year as, as an option somewhere in the NFL maybe not a starting quarterback option but 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 that's a hard job to be successful at whether you're a first string or second string there's the best in the world at that position what have been your thoughts on Davis Mills and just the way the Texans have utilized both him and Jeff Driscoll at times this season? Yeah, I, I think okay. I think, you know, in my opinion, the Texans, if they got the number one pick, they're probably going to draft a quarterback. Right. Uh, but I think that's the other thing that's hard, too, with a young quarterback. People automatically just assume, you know, guys can come in and play well year one, year two. I mean, it's a tough job. I mean, Trevor Lawrence yep. in Jacksonville very well may win the division. I think they're going to. There's a lot of people that were speculating on, you know, him and, and is he the long-term future in Jacksonville. And that's because generally when you're picking in the top five, your overall roster constructed isn't as great. And so just bringing in a quarterback – um, again, the NFL and, and college is a completely different animal. So I think that's, too, also what you think about if you're the Colts and, you know, obviously moving forward and, and the page is going to turn awful quick after Sunday afternoon to next year. But not just the quarterback, but the overall roster, right? And where are their holes? Where do we need to get better? Because just to think, you know, bringing in a different type of quarterback and that's no. going to change everything, that, that that's false hope, too. And so yeah. it, it's a matter, in my opinion, of really taking, you know, an honest look if, if you're Jim Ursay on where exactly is our team at, where exactly is our building at. And to me, probably most important, where, where is the culture at? Because I think there you go. The, the high watermark, you know, Rick Venturi and I have talked about this, you know, Christmas Day, you beat the Cardinals on a road, mm-hmm. and nobody thinks you were going to win. And since that game, it's just kind of been this continual downhill slide for the Colts. And to me, you know, that's the uh, that's the locker room and that's the things you got to dig in in terms of, you know, what is our culture when we walk in the building on a daily basis and getting back to that winning culture because I always would joke with my friends, you know, when I was playing, it's like, it's not easy to just show up and win 11 and 12 games every year. You know, Colts <laughs> no. fans, we've kind of been spoiled yeah. in a good way uh, for the golden years in terms of, you know, okay, are we going to win 11 this year or 13? Are we going to be the one seed or the two seed? You know, that's, that's really hard to do. And, and certainly the Colts, we've lived that now here over the last 
couple years, but especially really the last 12 months since that win, you know, against Christmas, uh, against Cardinals on Christmas and things have started going downhill. Joe, we certainly want your thoughts on DeMar Hamlin. We just learned within the last hour, uh, Rodney Thomas, the second rookie safety, who's come out of nowhere, seventh-round pick from Yale, to really solidify himself as a starting safety in the National Football League this quickly. We've been impressed with what he's done on the field. We're learning just the impressive young man he is off the field as well sharing that his high school teammate, DeMar Hamlin, back in Pittsburgh, they were one grade apart. You know, he made the decision yesterday with the approval of the Colts, who that was a very easy decision for the great people, you know, who make the calls there. He goes, travels to Cincinnati, spends time in DeMar Hamlin's hospital room, holding his hand, you know, in prayer with his family. You watched Monday. Um, I, I think back to your career you know, a teammate with Austin Collie briefly, you think back, I forget the year, that very frightening scene in Philadelphia with Austin. When you were watching Monday night, how did you process that? And how do you feel now that we know DeMar Hamlin, positive signs out of Cincinnati, but still there's a very long way to go for this young man? Yeah, well, I'd say that's great news. I hadn't heard that, that there were some positive signs yeah. and reports. So that's awesome. And I think, um, you know, probably like everybody in the NFL community and fraternity, you watch that and it just is, it really just kind of just stops you in your tracks in terms of um, just how much you feel for that situation and the, the gravity of it and uh, just, you know, how scary it was to kind of watch and unfold real time. So were you watching um, that you know, game yeah. live, Joe? Was that I, I, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, but, you know, then you, you turn on social media and everything there. Yeah. And, and so, you know, saw uh, different views and, uh, you know, people uh, talking about it, what had happened. But it's just uh, really, really hard. And again, you know, pray to the uh, the good Lord for his family and for their healing. And I think the the uh, showing the support from everybody from the NFL fraternity to people in Cincinnati to to Bills fans everywhere. Uh, you just mentioned, you know, Rodney Thomas, who, you know, again, side note, is having a great season for the Colts. That's, right. a, that's a heck of a draft pick. That's <laughs> the seventh round for the season that, that he's done. But uh, it, it just makes you put things into perspective. And I think, we, you know, we all get going quick in life and the hamster wheel spins. And um, and so just a, just a really, really hard situation. And um, it, it's been nice to see. Again, the outpouring of support from the NFL guys and fraternity. Because at the end of the day, that's what it really is, right? You want to go out and, and compete like heck and you know beat the other guy. But you know, guys don't want to injure people and, and ruin other people's careers. And I think that's the it's also just part of the brutal reality of the NFL is you know we we would joke about it sometimes, but you know somebody gets hurt in practice and you know their their ankles hurt or their knee, and, and what do you do? You move the drill, you know, twenty yards, and you keep going. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's the that's the tough part about the NFL, but obviously that injury was just at a completely different level. And I think that's something the NFL hasn't seen in a really, really long time. And again, social media, right. Makes things a lot more visible. You know, I know there's been tragic situations over time, but I think that the magnitude of that game, Monday night football, social media, the way that it happened has had a further reaching influence on uh, the super severe injury for DeMar more so than probably at any other point in time throughout the NFL's history. And I think that's probably why it's, you know, continued to be talked about day after day after day, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Joe Wright's nice Thank enough you. to take some time with us today via the Motor Shop in Fishers hotline. The Motor Shop in Fishers and the motorshop.com for your residential and commercial mowers, as well as snow blowers, power tools, equipment services, and so much more. They have you covered at the Motor Shop in Fishers and the motorshop.com. Joe, I did want to dabble in one more time in regards to the draft. I know that's going to be something that's on the minds of Colts fans and something you're going to be scouting and following along with as we get closer and closer to April's draft. We know there's still one game left to play, but having i'm sure at least consumed from afar some of the college football season this year and maybe you got a chance to see the the college football playoff games this weekend do you have any in terms of fit where a player would fit best for the colts in terms of some of those top prospects like uh bryce young like cd go joe you're on the clock yeah, uh, not uh, maybe not specifics. I thought, I thought you were going to ask me if the Colts should lose, and I had my answer prepared. It was an old, an old Nick Saban quote: "It's never okay to lose." There you go. That's it. I know that better than that. Joe. We're running a program here. The, the Colts are going to pick somewhere between four and six, and in my opinion, does it really matter if you're four or six? No, because you know, in my opinion, if you see a guy that you like at that quarterback position, you do what it takes to move up there, and the Colts are close enough that it shouldn't be a, a, a too big of an issue. But I haven't watched a ton of college football, honestly. You know, I just try to stay focused on the NFL and the Colts yeah. and then, uh, you know, third-grade football with my son. <laughs> so I love I love college football, but I, I, I would just be pure speculation in terms of who I've, I've studied and watched, et cetera. I don't get into it that much. I will do some more draft as we lead up to the analysis, but it's a uh, – it's an incomplete answer for me from that perspective. Let me rephrase. <laughs> let me rephrase it then. What stylistically would you like to see in the next quarterback in the Indianapolis Colts in terms of play style overall at the position? Pocket passer can't leave. <laughs> uh, I, I think that that mobi- the mobility you want that athleticism, but I, I'm still a you know a pass first guy. Again, you know I would say Justin Fields is a run first quarterback at this point. He can evolve into that. I just think the you know being able to do that year over year time after time with your body and and the hits yeah. that you're going to take I just think is necessarily unrealistic and so you compare him to a, a Justin Herbert right you know that somebody that can you know run around and do well but you're really running and are you scrambling to throw or are you scrambling to run you probably could distill it down to that and to me I'm I'm a fan of quarterbacks that are athletic and can move but they're scrambling to throw that ball down over your field for 60 70 yards I mean I think you know, when you look at the, the AFC, you know, th- those are the quarterbacks that are doing well right now. And the, the Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allens of the world, those are going to be the guys that you're going to have to beat if you're the Colts, you know, moving forward. Joe, this just came down. I, I would like your perspective on it. Final question from us. Really appreciate you joining us again. Joe writes alongside Charlie Clifford, Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. The turn of events for Carson Wentz one year ago, as you mentioned, Christmas night, the win. It's a win-and-in situation against the Raiders, win-and-in situation against the Jaguars. It doesn't happen. He's moved to Washington. He will now not start the finale in Washington after losing what was a must-win game this past week against the Cleveland team with Deshaun Watson. On your home turf, though, after having a rocky start in Washington, Taylor Heineke comes in, wins here in Indianapolis with the ball to Terry McLaurin, the hometown hero. Ron Rivera just announced Sam Howell's going to start the finale for the Commanders, it appears Carson Wentz, barring some sudden change of events, will be looking for now another new home, a third NFL team, I should say a fourth NFL team in four years. Your perspective on how this story has evolved on the top of the NFL world as an MVP candidate, and now Carson Wentz very clearly heading to, I think at best, maybe competing for a starting spot on a 
on a team that's very, you know, looking for a quarterback desperately or more likely a backup quarterback position for the first time in his football life next year. Your thoughts on that situation, Joe? Yeah, that's interesting. I, did, I didn't know that news. Um, you know, but you clearly Washington, they had high expectations and uh, didn't perform. And, and that's the reality of the NFL. And so I'm sure, you know, they got a young guy there, Powell, that they want to take a look at and, you know, not, uh, you know, similar but different ways to, you know, the Colts and Sam Ellinger and, you know, kind of seeing what he can do um, in terms of, you know, can they give him a spark and, and also looking for him for the future. Um, and so, yeah, it's just interesting. Definitely been a, uh, a fall from grace for, uh, you know, Carson Wentz. And I didn't really get the chance to know him, you know, and here he was Indy, but that, that obviously is a surprising move for me. Um, but again, that, that's the, that's the reality of the NFL. We always say, we know we're on one day contracts here, you know, players and coaches included, because at the end of the day, it, it's a bottom line business, right. And, and wins and losses uh, matter more than everything else. And that's, you know, you could kind of look at the cold season and, and you could, you know, lump that into the same, just, it's one thing to have a disappointing season. It's another one when expectations were really high. Yeah. Like everybody else thought this you know, uh, team was going to be really good and unfortunately hasn't bared out that way. So that's why it's been tough, especially you know, as a fan, especially as a, an alumni of the, of the horseshoe, but, but look to, to brighter days ahead for sure. Joe, thanks for some clarity on that situation. Awesome conversation here. Can't wait to get you back on here. Have a have a blast Sunday if it, that's even possible. But I know there's nothing like it the is. there's it nothing is. like the juice it's, of an NFL stadium. You know, it's 50 degrees right now. Let's go. It feels like spring. If you're a Colts fan, get to touchdown town. 10 o'clock a.m. Last one of the season. We'll get it fired up on the pregame show with uh, me, on Bill Brooks, and yeah. uh, JMV. There we go. Joe, I know in like mid-June, we would all be like, I would give anything to watch Colts-Texans just to have a little football. So let's keep that in the back of our minds, too. Maybe maybe we can have nope. some fun for a change. No question. Let's we'll go. be fired up in touchdown town. Get it rocking. Joe, you forgot the most important name out of that group in Jeffrey Gorman. <laughs> Uh, that, that might have been a purposely left. <laughs> you, know, you know how we do that. So, uh, yeah, we, we like, he, he does bring a lot of good juice, but we, we do like to give him a hard time. Joe Wrights, we appreciate you. The mower shop from Fisher's Hotline. We're going to go back to the DeMar Hamlin story right now on the fan 93.5107.5. Charlie Clifford, Wish TV, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, Olivia Ray, former colleague of mine at Wish TV, now at WLWT Television in Cincinnati. Olivia covered the game Monday night and just heard from Zach Taylor, Bengals head coach, for the first time at the podium since this life-changing story um, for all of us as we continue to try to take some positive notes out of this and await positive updates on Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin. Olivia, thanks for taking a little time on what's been a very trying 48 hours for you as a professional journalist you listened to Zach Taylor. What did you learn from the Bengals head coach this afternoon? Break down the nuts and bolts that I think a lot of football fans as a whole wanted to know right now. Uh, Zach Taylor did say that the Bengals are in the building today. In fact, I just spoke with Jamar Chase on my way walking out of Paycor Stadium to my car. asked him how he was doing. He was still pretty somber. Um, said he was doing all right. asked about T. Higgins. They said he's he's handling it as well as he could, obviously affected by the situation. Zach Taylor said they will play the Ravens on Sunday. There is still no word of when that game will kick off 
here in Cincinnati because obviously the start time was supposed to be determined by Monday Night Football's outcome, um, which, again, Zach Taylor also said there has been no decision on if that game will be played at a later date or not against the Bills. So that's nuts and bolts from a football perspective. Zach Taylor was clearly trying to hold back tears um, mm-hmm. in a lengthy statement, first of all, offering his his prayers and, and thoughts to DeMar and his family and the entire Bills organization. Um, he also made note that he said all of the confusion, I think, that we watched unfold where the Bengals started to warm up. Joe Buck reported right. being in touch with the league officials that um, they were given a five-minute warm-up warm period. Zach Taylor made note that that really was never a thought to them. They were trying to process what was happening, something that none of them have ever been through. Um, he said his first conversation with Sean McDermott, he walked over to him on the sideline and he said, Zach, I need to be at the hospital with tomorrow. I can't coach this game. And he said it was wow. then that he realized, you know, this there was absolutely no way that could go on. That's when they went back to the locker rooms and started to, I think, dissect how to move forward and, and the best possible way to communicate that with the 70,000 people that were sitting in the stands waiting word. We learned earlier today, Olivia, again, this is Olivia Ray, WLWT TV in Cincinnati, uh, that Colts safety Rodney Thomas, a high school teammate of DeMar Hamlin, traveled to Cincinnati and was able to spend time with his family next to Hamlin's bedside. Who else, in terms of, from what you've gathered, has made the trip to Cincinnati to spend time with, um, clearly, a young man who needs every prayer he can get at this moment in time? Yes, well, I was in touch with and actually standing outside the Bills locker room as all of this was unfolding, and... Stadium security um, tried to stop Stefan Diggs from leaving as the rest of the Bills were in the locker room that night. He told them he needed to be with family and friends and then proceeded to ask people outside the stadium for directions to the hospital, which if you're familiar with Cincinnati, UC Medical Center is a two-mile hike fully uphill. I do believe he tried to walk some of it, eventually got an Uber and got to the hospital to see his teammate. Um, I do not believe he left with the rest of the Bills organization because they left directly from Paycor Stadium. Um, I know that Cal Adamitis, the Bengals' long snapper, went right. to high school and right. college at Pitt. He's been in touch with the family, and Tyler Boyd has as well. I expect to speak with Tyler Boyd later this evening. Um, Zach Taylor made note, too. He said it, it really hit him hard when he saw TB out on the field amongst the Bills, and he said, Tyler, do you know him? And he said, that's my guy from Pitt. And he said there, he knew that there was no way they could t- could continue playing, and, and he knew that this – I think the gravity of the situation when he saw Tyler's face, because Tyler, as you just asked, I know has been in touch with his family and been visiting as well. Wow. Olivia, it's Jimmy. Um, obviously, this is a very tough situation for everybody, but, but nationally, and I'm not going to – give the airtime to those that did it, but but some people very unfairly and crudely suggested that T. Higgins had something to do with this. Obviously, we know that not to be true. It was just a football play. It's an unfortunate accident. Uh, did Zach speak at all on, on how T. Higgins is doing through all this? Yes, he said T. is handling it 
as well as he could be. Um, and that's really the only comment he made on it. I don't expect to hear from T today. I do expect to hear from Ted Karras, um, who is the NFLPA representative player rep for the Bengals. I've spoken with Ted actually just this morning um, before we expect to hear with him. He said that the Bengals and the NFLPA have provided counselors and clinicians um, to anyone that would like to speak with them or needs help. So I think that's right now that's the best that they can do is offer the help. Um, but we haven't spoken with T personally. I, like I said, I just asked Jamar how he's doing and, and the look on his face said, that they're leaning on each other is is what I'm going to read between the lines right now. So Olivia Ray out of Cincinnati, WLWT-TV, she covered Monday Night Football and certainly a tip of the cap, Olivia, to you and all the local journalists in Cincinnati as we were reading and waiting for updates across the country. Uh, I thought overwhelmingly the reporting of facts and not speculation and the you know, making sure at, at top of mind that out of respect to DeMar Hamlin and his family, I, I thought things were just, it was a masterclass by so many people and how they addressed that situation. This was an update 10 minutes ago from the Buffalo Bills. DeMar Hamlin remains in the ICU in critical condition. Signs of improvement were noted yesterday and again last night. Uh, he's going to remain in intensive care. That is uh, certainly, again, taking small, small steps forward here in, in terms of positive updates. I was able to connect briefly with Naheem Hines, former Colt running back, who's now a Buffalo Bill. Uh, he had you know, been very appreciative of many folks from Indianapolis reaching out to him. And, you know, it, it's always good to have Naheem Hines on your side, especially in an unprecedented circumstance like this, someone who cares about other people. And he basically left the note with saying, I'm going to, I'm going to hold these guys together. I'm going to do my part. We're going to be okay. Uh, Olivia, your sense of the city of Cincinnati, a city that above everyone else in the national football league has gone from, you know, the doormat to Super Bowl contender, essentially overnight as quick as you can do it in the NFL in this day and age. Uh, I know personally my wife lives in Cincinnati. I have seen that town painted in orange and the energy and the jolt that team has given everyone who lives in and around that city. How would you describe the feeling as you go around from the hospital to, I assume, downtown spots over the last two days? Please give us a glimpse into what it's like right now downtown. Every billboard, um, especially, you know, every electronic billboard has been replaced with a sign that says pray for DeMar. It has his number three plastered everywhere. Every city, including every city landmark, including Pecor Stadium, has been lit up blue for the last, Mm. what, 48 hours now. Um, This entire city who is very impartial to their football team has (laughs) all been wearing blue. Um, it's it's really incredible to see them come together along with all of the Buffalo fans that have actually extended their trip and have attended a prayer vigil for Damar last night. Some of them I know had to make 
their trip back and have been stayed in touch with the Bengals fans that were next sitting next to them in the stands. Everyone has been checking Man. on each other. I mean, this was a traumatic event for the 70,000 people that were sitting in the stands as well. So uh, Zach Taylor just praised the city of Cincinnati and how they handled this with class um, and how they continue to handle it and support Bill's mafia as well throughout this. Livia, you were obviously live tweeting at times Zach Taylor's comments today. One of the last tweets you got out there before you joined us, and again, just a lot of tough questions across the board, but one of them was asked, which isn't the most important thing right now, but is an element that is going to be visited at some point as Week 18 arrives, is does all of this give pause to any of the players about taking the field again? Yes, and I think that goes without saying that this is going to be in the back of everyone's mind anytime they take the football field. One, all of the players that were on the field on Monday night, but also everyone that tuned in to Monday night football or everyone that just has seen the severity of this injury. He said that he understands that his locker room knows what they signed up for. This is a physical game. It's a dangerous game. And he doesn't believe that anyone in this locker room um, will maybe, I'm not going to say opt out of games or anything like that, but he said that he's been given no indication of that at this time. Obviously, all they can do right now is provide support to their players. He praised the team chaplain, Vinny Ray, and then, as I said, they are providing counselors and clinicians to speak with um, to any of the players because while it may not be said out loud, it will give some of them pause, but he also knows that they understand how physical this game can be at times. And that certainly will be the case on Sunday as the Ravens travel to Cincinnati. Again, we're waiting official kickoff time, Baltimore, Bengals, and as the NFL Nation begins to try to heal here along hopefully with more positive updates on DeMar Hamlin, it will be a tearjerker of a Saturday and a Sunday as games across the NFL take a moment of silence in prayer for DeMar Hamlin and then followed by the national anthem. Olivia Ray at Olivia Ray TV. Please, if you are tied to this story as much as we are here on The Fan, give Olivia a foul. She will provide the updates going forward out of Cincinnati. Liv, great to hear you under these unfortunate circumstances. All the best going forward in Cincinnati. Keep up the great work, all right? Thank you. Appreciate you guys. It's Olivia Ray, WLWT-TV. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. Happy Hump Day. Happy Wednesday to you. Jimmy Cook, Charlie Clifford. Eddie Garrison spinning great yarn behind the ones and twos. Joining us now via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline. Motor Shop and Fishers, MotorShop.com for your residential commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, power equipment, tools, and so much more at the MotorShop.com. He is the wearer of many hats around Gabridge Fieldhouse, including the radio host and sideline reporter for your Indiana Pacers, Pat Boylan. You can follow Pat. him on Twitter, at Pat Boylan Pacers. Pat, thanks for making the time, as always, and jumping right in. You mentioned this on Twitter the other day, but acknowledging four straight, six of seven for the Sirs, where's been the biggest key to this stretch of strong play for Indiana. Gentlemen, I appreciate you having me on first and foremost, and it's undoubtedly been the play of the Pacers down the stretch in these games. So there's numerous ways that you can evaluate uh, close games 
in terms of three-point games, five-point games. But one metric the NBA uses is called the clutch game, which is if a game is at any time within five points in the final five minutes, it qualifies for a clutch game. And basically, if you look at the Pacers' stretch of their last 12 games, they lost four out of five. There was that Knicks game where uh, the Pacers did not close out a six-point lead late. We know the comments that were made by Wally Zerbiak. And really, ever since that game, the Pacers have been excellent in these close games. And really, when you look at a lot of it, um, the Pacers were playing in a ton of close games in that stretch where they lost four or five, and they're playing in a ton of close games in this stretch where they're winning six or seven. The difference has been the play in these final few minutes. And a couple things stand out about what they're doing. The Pacers have the fifth best defense in the last five minutes of these games here lately, which obviously Great is a major key. But it's been Tyrese Halliburton. And the, the guy's averaging 10 points per game in the fourth quarter over this stretch. If you think about that, that's the pace of a player scoring 40 points per game if he were to do that in all four quarters. And shooting at great numbers, his, his typical ball distribution is there. And he's, he's getting to the rim, I think, a lot more, which is significant, too. I think he probably felt like he maybe settled a little bit too much. And it just seemed like something has clicked for him down the stretch in these games lately. And I think it's a fantastic and uh, really interesting storyline to watch here going forward if he can keep this going. Pat, Rick Carlisle has commented recently, look, why do I lead the league in technical fouls? I'm trying to protect a culture here that is in a growth stage in a situation where a month ago, everyone externally, subconsciously, for better or worse, looked at this as a rebuilding project. Um, You know, that certainly at some point will work against you when the ball's tipped and you're on the road and you're fighting for young players that are fighting to prove themselves. The biggest change over this seven-game run now, behind the scenes from a confidence standpoint, has it been moving mountains in terms of the confidence from this group? How would you describe what this recent hot stretch has been four in the row, six of seven? Bring us into that story. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because, as I was just saying, the Pacers, it really doesn't feel like they're playing drastically differently sure. until the ends of these games. Like, they were playing in a lot of close games and dropping some recently, and then in this last stretch, playing in a lot of close games and excelling down the stretch. So I really don't think um, there was a major sort of confidence change, but I did think Tyrese Halliburton had an interesting comment as it relates to that, which is he was asked why he feels like the Pacers have been a lot better closing out games lately. And he said it's because we lost a lot of these games (laughs) uh, earlier in the year. And he said there's no better teacher than dropping some of these and learning – you know, the way not to do it. And and he feels like he himself and the Pacers as a team have really benefited from some of those games where things didn't go well. And, you know, if that really is the case, if that is what's happening here, I think it's a tremendous sign. A team that can learn from its mistakes midseason, not always the easiest thing to do, especially when you've got a group as young as this one is, right? I mean, Tyrese Halliburton's the leader of this whole thing. He's 22 years old. Uh, I was still in, I mean, many of us were still in college and we were 22 two years old and he's doing these type of things. So I think it's, it's really been, they've done an excellent job at looking back at maybe some areas where they could have improved upon in these late stretch games, but also uh, just in these games in general. And they've made those tweaks mid season on the fly. And I think it's been really impressive to watch a group that is as young as this one do that. 
Pat, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, the I don't want to say the jury was still out, but there was still a interesting talking point of where was the season going to tilt as the teeter-totter was kind of unfolding for the Pacers in the early going first third of the season. Are they going to be a team that spans ahead and is in the middle to higher ups of the Eastern Conference? Or are they going to teeter back to the lottery? The answer, at least over this stretch, is they are going to be a playoff team and a force to be reckoned with. Has this stretch moved that way fully for you? And are the changes they've made and the tendencies they've adapted over these last couple of games sustainable long term? Yeah, it's interesting because you're not going to go. I mean, for the Pacers perspective, they have won five straight of these games that qualify as clutch. Even the very best teams, the one with the ones with the biggest superstars. Pat, how many games did they do that last year? Clutch wins. What was that win total? Do you know that? The Pacers, I do. The Pacers had 11 clutch (laughs) wins last year, and they've got 14 already this year. So it's it's a massive jump. And a lot of this is what Tyree Halliburton is doing. A lot of this is what the Pacers are improving upon down the stretch. Um, but even the very best teams don't win all of these games, right? So, I mean, there's going to be probably some regression to the mean, which is important to note. And I think it's, if you're a Pacers perspective, maybe a, a next step is playing in a few less of these games for good reasons, getting sure. yourself a little bit of a bigger cushion and not needing uh, the final couple of minutes. But, I mean, we're talking about, to me, steps that I thought we'd be talking about in two to three years. So the fact that we're already there I think is 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 pretty fascinating and I think I think it's still very much up in the air I mean we hit the midway point of the season on Sunday the Knicks are a great you know lesson of just how quickly things can jump up or jump down good point night they beat the Pacers the Knicks had won seven in a row and had moved up to six and the Pacers were three games behind them we're just two weeks later and the Pacers are now ahead of the Knicks the two teams have flip-flopped the Knicks have kind of done a nosedive and the Pacers have jumped up and the reason that I don't have a definitive answer to that question is because a comment that I thought Rick Carlisle said, which has been as telling as anything he's maybe said all year, he feels like in his 38 years he's been involved in the NBA, the league has never had more parity. And just look at the Eastern Conference standings, look at the Western Conference standings, and say, okay, if you pull any team besides maybe the couple at the top of the East and a couple at the bottom of both the East and the West. And sure. you say, let's give that team a six-game winning streak. Look what it does. I mean, it, it dramatically changes their positioning. So there is so much parity this year that I think we're all still kind of along for the ride. But this recent trend um, in general has been, has been terrific just to kind of see the Pacers turn a couple of pages on a couple of areas. And even when they lost that Knicks game, they were still sitting right around 500, which I think is is greatly ahead of schedule where you probably consider this team at the beginning of the year. But I do think they've opened up maybe a few more doors. If you look at the different possibilities of where this season could go, I think you still have a wide range of possibilities. Totally. Over the last two weeks. Many of those those options, many of those possibilities have opened up on the positive side. And so, you know, obviously things are trending in the right direction now, but still a long way to go. Fellas, there was one sellout at the field house. There's going to be plenty more the rest of the way. Halliburton admitted it the other night after the win against Toronto. We know fan bases in the NBA right around Christmas time. You make that internal decision collectively. All right. Are we are we getting invested in this or? Am I just going to casually kind of be a bystander? I expect Gamebridge Fieldhouse, and for many folks who haven't been back the past two seasons, because let's be honest, there wasn't much of a reason to go back to watch the product on the floor. 
this place is going to return to its status as one of the toughest places to play in the NBA. They proved that against Los Angeles. It felt that way against the Cavaliers. Pat, the best part for me about this team is, as you continue to look at the box scores every night, the double-figure scores, the mixing and matching of the second unit, the evolution, the ability for, as Rick Carlisle pointed out the other night, TJ McConnell, yeah, he stepped up, he had 15. Let's face it, he's had a change of role in terms of he's used to playing close to 20 minutes a night. They have so many weapons that appear so unselfish. In terms of the teams that you've covered in Indiana, has there been a more unselfish group through 40 games than this team that's currently taking the floor tonight in Philadelphia? Again, an injury update. Joel Embiid officially questionable for tonight. Where would you go on that one, Pat? Yeah, I mean, it, it is up there at the very top. It probably is at the very top. We'll see, you know, how this season comes to an end and how some of those things tend to transpire. But, I mean, that is the bottom line of this group. And I think about, look, the players were very different, and unfortunately the scenario unfolded differently a few years ago. But it is a bit reminiscent of that 2017-2018 season when they were predicted uh, much worse than they actually did. But what's so similar is... That was the year they took LeBron to seven, correct? That's the team you're alluding to? Cool. Correct. The team that won 48 games, um, it took LeBron James to seven, probably gets out of the first round if they're matching another opponent. Yes, yes. One whistle, Pat. One whistle. Yes, one whistle, and perhaps that series turns out differently. And so I think there's something that it's why we all love sports, right? There's something untangible that doesn't even show up in the stats. That is, if you get the right group of guys together, then they're capable of doing things the unthinkable far beyond what they're paid, what they look like on paper, what the talent level just appears to be. And, and this group has so many of those intangibles that remind me of that group that we are talking about right now. And so that's, that's to me an even better sign because this group is so young. That group was, was much more uh, veteran laden. It had Thaddeus Young and Corey Joseph and uh, Victor Oladipo, who was kind of middle of his career. This group is very, very young, and they're doing a lot of those things. And a lot of these guys are under team control for a good amount of time. So I, I think that that's the dynamic at play that you're seeing right now. Um, the unselfishness, whatever you want to call it. This team is fitting together from a chemistry perspective just incredibly well, and it's showing when you get that right uh, just how significant that can be. And, And maybe you can even look at last year's team as an example. A ton of talent and a ton of really good guys, and it never just fully clicked. And a lot of that was due to injury trouble. And now you've got a lot of young guys, but everything is clicking in the right direction, and it's amazing the different type of seasons that you can have when you get that type of thing right. And it's very difficult to do. Pat Boylan, nice enough to take some time with us via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline. The Motor Shop and Fishers for all your residential and commercial mowers, snow blowers, power equipment, and so much more. Motor Shop and Fishers and themotorshop.com. Pat, we know we might not get the matchup of Embiid and Miles Turner tonight, but that'd be fine. You know, I get... think Joel, he should take a day. He, he should. I'm thinking about Joel Embiid today. Take take a night, Joel. Give a day off. Well, regardless of what he does, Tyrese Halliburton, James Harden, the Why other not? key matchup uh, to fall tonight. Uh, how how palpitating is a matchup like this going to be on both sides? 
It'll be really interesting because the last time these two teams played, it was so early in the year. Yeah. And for those who don't remember, the Pacers started off one and four. And I think a lot of the narrative that maybe many people thought going into the season uh, by that point was looking like it, maybe that was confirmed. Wemben Yamba. I think you go into this game here just looking at it dramatically differently than you did the one uh, in late October. But, but you know, Philadelphia has had that same kind of storyline, that monkey on their back for a while. Tons of talent, good regular seasons. Can it work together at the highest level? We'll see if Embiid goes. You know, he's a problem for everybody. He's playing at an MVP level. James Harden playing really well. Also, Tyreek Maxey getting healthier. So uh, it, it, it's a really good test here. The Pacers have played very well lately. A lot of these games have been at home. They did go into Boston and they did go into Miami mm-hmm. to get a couple of wins. Those games were a couple weeks ago. So can they find the same road toughness that they brought to Boston and Miami here tonight in Philadelphia, which is an equally tough environment? The road games they have had lately, they've really been tested then. Pat, jokes aside, it would be great to see him beat out there. This has been a stretch where Rick Carlisle's pointed out, look, you're not just beating the Clippers, Miami, Atlanta, Boston, you know, when someone's taken a, an off night for load management. This has been toe-to-toe against the Stars in crunch time. And quite frankly, no one can stay in front of Tyrese Halliburton, and that's proved to be a very good thing for Coach Carlisle. Bigger statement, if the Pacers win tonight in Philadelphia or the win this past week in Boston, which would tell you more uh, if you're Coach Carlisle, Pat? You know, that's an interesting question. I think the Boston one would maybe stand out more, although how it how it happens will also be significant. But, you know, Boston at the very top of the standings and just that was coming off of losing four of five. And right. I remember when that game happened, the Pacers had lost four of five. They'd fallen under 500 for the first time since the very beginning of the season. You're looking at Boston, you're looking at Miami, and then you're looking at New Orleans, three really tough teams coming up and saying, okay, can you keep things on the rails here? And not only did they keep things on the rails, they won in Boston. It's and the then turning point, Pat. That'll be the it turning really point is. when we look back really at this is. season. That'll be it, it no? It absolutely is. I think, I think it absolutely will be if the Pacers have the type of success that they feel like they can have. You will look at the end of that New York Knicks game and you will draw a line in the schedule. And I think it, to what, you know, Charlie, you were just talking about, look at the month of December. The Pacers finished 8-8. Eight and eight. That's not necessarily something that stands out over a month going 500, I know. But if, if and anybody at home or in the car, when you get a chance, like look at the schedule in December. <laughs> don't do it while you're driving. But when you, when you get a chance, look at, look at the month of December. And it's not hard to imagine a scenario where 15 of those 16 teams may make the playoffs. Right. This could, have been, this, was, this could have been the month that said, okay, it was fun. And then reality set in. That, that's what I expected. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, and you look at all those opponents. I mean, the Pacers haven't had a game that you went into and you said, all right, judging you know, by the opponent here, um, you expect to win this game. Uh, maybe they get that coming up in Charlotte in a couple games, but it's been a really tough stretch of schedule. So just to be able to weather this, I think is really significant. Um, the month of December, I thought, might be a really telling month, whether what you just said happens. And it has been. Are able to weather it, yeah. and it's been telling for a positive way. Yeah, Pat, as silly as it was, you know, and as simple as the thought of it is, you can't start a fire without a spark. And Wally Zerbiak did Pacers fans a huge favor, whether subconsciously or otherwise, uh, 
look, sometimes when you haven't been talked about for years and you're starting to get some notoriety and some interest outside of your market, the way Pacer fans defended Tyrese Halliburton and the way he has responded and the way he has attacked late in games, it's just been a perfect, perfect ending. Uh, Do you disagree or agree that sometimes a team that's middling, a team that knows Miles Turner admitted it this weekend, hey, this organization, we've had a fight for everything. We get looked over year after year. And guess what? We're waking a lot of people up. Do you think there is some value in the fact that the this, this season turned in that Boston game and it came because of, you know, look, you got called out unfairly and and now you're reaping the benefits from that. Put that in perspective for me. Well, I think if if you could go back in time, I think it's undoubtedly true for numerous reasons that Wally Zerbiak would take those comments back for the reasons that are obvious. Which Harry he did. Halliburton will be, and he did, yes, correct. Yeah. He did. He did rescind those comments. I think he wished he didn't make them, of course, uh, in in live. Now, it's it's impossible to know cause and effect there, right? I mean, the Pacers have had really strong stretches of season. I thought Tyrese Halliburton handled it perfectly. He said he saw the comments. He uses everything as motivation. Zerbiak isn't somebody um, that he necessarily looked up to. He said, had it been somebody that I looked up to when I was young, maybe that would have hit harder. But, I mean, the, the comment that he made was, I take motivation from guys with two followers that at me on Twitter. So he's looking <laughs> it's the for Shaq Leonard playbook. <laughs> so, yeah, he's looking for any sort of source. And, uh, you know, I, I do think, you know, maybe he started to ignite something. But what, what the Pacers have done, I think, on a larger level, it may, probably doesn't involve a, a former NBA player calling anybody out on Twitter. I think it's Tyrese Halliburton went down and, and the Pacers went down and they looked at that game and they probably looked at recent games where they struggled down the stretch and said, how can we get better? And Halliburton is such a student of the game. If you just look at his shot selection, even in those last couple of games and then looked at them now, he's doing totally different things to have success. He's a good three point shooter and he getting always to the line. Be, get into the line, get into the line, yeah. he's getting into the lane. Um, and that's something he didn't do against New York. And so I think that's been the biggest difference maker is that that game against the Knicks, those comments or not, was very disappointing in terms of how the Pacers closed it out. And I think he and the team took a good, hard look. Rick Carlisle, the coaching staff, took a good, hard look at where they can improve there. And again, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, to be able to do that on the fly and fairly dramatically, I think is really impressive. Pat, it's easy to point to this with different players, but in general, when you're on a contract year across all sports, whenever there's there's money on the line, you often do see a high-level increase in production. Uh, it happens again, NFL, NBA, you name it. But Miles has always been, Miles Turner has always been a high-level player. How much of this is, is more than just, oh, it's a contract year, now he's finally in a groove? How much of this is really what the Pacers are setting him up to play with really for, for the first time back in his true five slot? Yeah, I think it's mostly opportunity there. And look, DeMontis Sabonis, Miles Turner, two very talented centers, and I thought they did about as good of a job as you can playing together, knowing that one of, you know, essentially Sabonis was playing the four when the Pacers were on defense because you wanted Turner at the rim. And Turner was playing the four on offense because you wanted Sabonis bullying the other guys. Well, 
uh, he was at the rim on offense. And Turner, you know, basically came out and said, you know, I would like the opportunity to um, be the guy in the middle. And I give him a ton of credit because he's backed up those words. He's averaging something like 17 and 8, but his efficiency numbers are really, uh, really impressive. I mean, he's almost 50, 40, 80. And when your center can shoot, 40% 40% from the three-point line, um, you know, the attempts he makes, and then also go and protect the rim. That's the one thing Turner's always had. He's always been a very good rim protector, but could he find a way to be more consistent with these other skill sets? And it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing. He wants more opportunity, but he didn't have the opportunity. So how do you get that? Well, the trade that happened that uh, landed the Pacers, Tyrese Halliburton, was also very beneficial because it unlocked Miles Turner, too. And so I tend to think most of this is opportunity, but I do give Miles a lot of credit because, um, you know, he, he was in a position where he wasn't always playing his natural spot right. for numerous years, and here's your opportunity. And frankly, there's, there's a, I think, a fair amount of pressure involved in that. Okay, I've been wanting this for a while. Here's my shot. What <laughs> happens? And, and he's been, for the most part, excellent, and especially – in this December stretch on, he's been really, really good. I mean, he had a 34-point game the other day, and he does things that don't show up in the stat sheet. There was a play uh, late in that Toronto game where I think it was uh, Van Vliet who got by his man, drove to the rim. Turner was there, and because Turner was there, he kicked it out, and I think it was Buddy Heald who got a steal and pretty much put a hammer on the end of that game. And those are types of plays where guys like Fred Van Vliet – they beat their guy the same way night in and night out. They get to the rim the same way. And 90, 95% uh, of centers, once they get there, they're able to finish through or at least give themselves a good opportunity of finishing at the rim versus right. an opposing center. And when they get to players like Turner or that elite class of rim protector, it's just a different story. And that doesn't show up as a block. And Turner didn't get credited for any of that. But he was the difference maker on right. a play like that. When you consider him bringing his high-level defense in and being able to increase his offensive efficiency and rebound at a better level, it's never going to be his strength, but I think he's doing it about well enough. Uh, he's been the title player that I think he was trying to show he could be. It's great insight. Pat Boylan, Pacers Radio Network, pregame tonight, 6.30. Pacers, Sixers going for five in a row. Miles Turner, gentlemen. Entering tonight, second among all centers in three-point percentage, third in blocks, sixth in points. A career year potentially continuing tonight. Again, Joel Embiid, questionable. Looks like that line's still sitting at Sixers by six and a half. We'll let Jimmy, the expert, handle that. Pat, great to hear from you, and just keep this thing rolling, man, all right? I appreciate both of you, and uh, we'll look forward to being on here hopefully again sometime soon. That is Pat Pat. Boylan 